come here because we want to worship you. This is not just um, part of our schedule or, or routine, but we want to exalt you and we know we need assistance, we need help. Um, and that's why we've gathered to pray. We want to see your name exalted in this church, in our lives, and Lord, we want more people to come to know you. We want your name to be exalted in more souls around this region and and even throughout the world, even as we consider the work of our missionaries. And we've come here, Lord, because we want to hear from your word. You've penned the book of Revelation that we might have uh, a sense of your plan for the future and that we might know how to live in light of the future. And so we also ask for assistance in understanding it, that we would not just again, understand it, but that we would be transformed through the hearing of the word, that we'd have our minds renewed and that you would deepen conviction and give us clarity, even give us guidance to know how we should live in light of uh, all that you reveal in this text of Scripture. And I pray that you'd help me to be clear um, and encourage your saints here tonight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, I'd like to examine the whole of this chapter, which speaks to the ceiling of the 144,000. I'll go ahead and read it, and we'll dive in. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this is one of the passages in the Bible that many unbelievers are familiar with, largely because of the distortions that many cults and religions have made of this passage, Uh, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses who fancifully assert that the 144,000 refers to true Christians or namely the Jehovah's Witnesses themselves. And these 144,000 are the only people who will be granted access to heaven. There may be some believers, they, they would say, that still get the blessing of being on earth and they'll be ruled over by God and the 144,000 who dwell in heaven. But only those 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses will truly have access to heaven. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints believe that the ceiling of the 140,000, uh, this number refers to the special priests, uh, particularly those who are effective at converting souls to the Mormon faith. Uh, the do- their doctrine and covenant says this, quote, For they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, by the angels to whom God is Sorry, by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. So they're effective at bringing people to Mormonism. Uh, The Unification Church, otherwise known as the Moonies, uh, say that the 144,000 represent the total number of true believers that Christ must find upon the earth. They say, quote, who can restore through the indemnity the missions of all the past saints who, despite their best efforts to do God's will, fell prey to Satan when they failed in their responsibilities. Christ must find these people during his lifetime and lay the foundation of victory over Satan's world. Islam uh, believes that the 144,000 refers to the number of companion prophets to the prophet Muhammad. So they believe that there's 144,000 supporting prophets um, that support what Muhammad has preached. But it's not only these cults and false religions that have distorted this number. Many evangelicals often do as well. Um, And and that's because they, they want to read into the text what they want the text to say rather than just looking at the clues and within the text or using sound exegetical principles but the goal in bible interpretation is is not so much to be creative as it is to be reasonable and that's that's really my intent this evening to give a reasonable explanation and to provide for you uh, at least a plausible explanation of what i think this text is saying if not a convincing explanation so to begin with i believe the chapter can be broken down into two sections the sealing of the Jewish saints, and secondly, the section in um, 
I think, sorry, the section that begins in verse 9 that entails the worship of all saints throughout history. Let's look at that first section, which deals with the sealing of the Jewish saints. To get a correct interpretation, a number of questions need to be asked and answered. Uh, Like the book of Revelation as a whole, this chapter is full of symbolic imagery, starting with the four angels and the four winds from the four corners of the earth. So what is that referring to? Well, the angels in Revelation uh, figure prominently. They give further revelation to John. They explain the significance of symbolism at times. But, and they also participate in acts of judgment, and that's what's being signified here. Uh, the four corners of the earth is just a, a figurative way of describing the whole earth, the entire earth. Um, the four winds here are symbolic of God's wrath. We know this because what the angel says in verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God. So these winds are about to bring destruction upon the entire earth. And this judgment is going to be felt by the earth, the trees, and all people, and the sea. And only those who are specially sealed as the servants of God will escape the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, One question then that, that gets asked is, when will this sealing take place? John says that the call to seal the servants of God happens after the sixth seal has been opened. And note the, the, the statement after this in verse 1. But the judgment that gets poured out on opening the sixth seal is described as pretty cataclysmic in verses 12 through 14. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Stars fell from the sky onto the earth. Uh, The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. So, given the cataclysm of this judgment, the timing of the the sealing of the 144,000 probably happens before these judgments take place, uh, before the opening of the sixth seal. Uh, The fact of their being sealed is only mentioned here with the sixth seal, and I think the reason is, is because it symbolizes this, the seal, it symbolizes the future salvation of the people of Israel. So I don't think that what this is saying is that it, the 144,000 are sealed after all these cataclysmic, cataclysmic judgments, but the fact it's just saying that they will be sealed, and because they've been sealed, they will make it through these cataclysmic judgments and be able to stand. Um, so this... Uh, this judgment that's going to be poured out is, is coming at the end of the Great Tribulation. And the reason these 144,000 endure is because they've already been sealed by God. So I think the sealing happens before chapter 6, 12 through 16, not after. But the effect of the sealing is revealed with the sixth seal because of what it's being described. And the judgments that are described in verses Chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, which we looked at last week, correspond to the judgments of chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 that are described. And it's helpful to recall that the scroll with its seven seals really describes the unfolding of all of God's final plan of redemption. It it reveals what is yet to be revealed in Scripture. 
uh, what's going to happen in the last days. So the sealing of the 144,000 revealed in this sixth seal answers the question that's asked in chapter 6, verse 16. Who can stand the wrath of the Lamb? The answer is only those who have been sealed by God will be able to stand. And text then mentions who will receive that protective seal. Note it says 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. This brings up the next question, which is, is this a symbolic number or literal? Is it a literal number of 144,000 people? Or is it just symbolizing a great deal from every tribe that it, that's encompassing all of Israel in a figurative way? Well, those who argue that it's symbolic point to the multiplication of 12 times 12 times 1,000 being a, a symbolic number and should be interpreted symbolically. They also say John says that the, the people are from every tribe, but the tribe of Dan is omitted. And they also point out that 12 tribes are no longer in existence, so even today, Jews don't actually know, most Jews don't actually know who they're descended from, and so how could this be literal? Those who argue that it's literal point to the fact that 12,000 from each tribe is specifically itemized in the verses that follow. So because it's itemized, it would indicate that this should be understood literally. Um, they also assert that numbers, even in the book of Revelation, should always be interpreted literally unless there's some clear reason to interpret them symbolically. Such as, a, you know, a good example would be the seven spirits uh, that represent the seven, the seven torches that represent the seven spirits that we looked at earlier. Or the number 666 where an explanation is saying this should be understood symbolically there in that, with that reference to that number. So those are the two ways uh, people interpret it, symbolic or literally. I, I think at the end of the day it doesn't really matter because the point is essentially the same. God is going to preserve his people and enable them to endure through the great tribulation because he has sealed them. So I don't think it matters whether it's a literal uh, 144,000 people or it's just symbolic of all the tribe people of the tribes of Israel. But I do, if you were, you know, I do think that it probably is a literal number because it's itemized. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's a hill to die on either. So the fourth question we should ask is, who are the 144,000? Uh, does this refer to Jewish believers only? Or is it uh, symbolic of Jewish and Gentile believers combined? Uh, New Covenant believers, both Jew and Gentile. Well, a simple reading of the text demonstrates that only Jews are being spoken of here. It's actually made explicitly clear when he itemizes uh, people from each of the 12 tribes, literal tribes of Israel. Uh, if it was being symbolic, you would think it would just be a phrase saying that those who are of Israel or of the seed of Christ or seed of Abraham or something, but it actually lists the 12 tribes. And even those who claim that it might be referring to a spiritual Israel or a true Israel fail to recognize that nowhere in the Bible is the term Jew or Israel used in a symbolic fashion. It's always used in reference to literal descendants of Abraham. 
uh, literal ethnic Jews, Jacob's natural descendants. Although Romans 2.28 and even Revelation 2.9 and 3.9 speak of Jews who are not truly Jews, still, even in that reference, it's speaking of literal Jews, just Jews that claim to, to love God but aren't embracing their Messiah. They're not true Jews, but it's still speaking of Jews, not Gentiles. So the use of the term Israel in the listing of the 12 tribes strongly demonstrates that this is referring to Jews who will be preserved through the Great Tribulation. Now, those who believe that we should understand the 12 tribes as symbolic of all Christians really have no warrant to justify it. It's possible, but there's no textual warrant that would suggest that that's how we should understand this. And they would counter that, it, that maybe that it's hard to imagine, though, that only Jews would be preserved through the Great Tribulation. I think that's a fair counter, a fair challenge. But in response, we should recognize that even if the 144,000 only refers to Jews, it doesn't mean that only Jews are going to be preserved. It's just saying it's these 144,000 that are sealed and who will make it through. In fact, I think the text explicitly teaches that Gentile believers from every nation will be saved. In fact, that's the main point of the second section, verses 9 through 17, is it that it's not just the 144,000 sealed Jews that will make it through the Great Tribulation, but really all believers from every nation will endure and to the end. The Gentile believers that aren't sealed with the sign of their foreheads don't need to be because they've already been sealed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the sealing won't be on their forehead, it'll be in their heart. So the 144,000 sealed here are Jews whom God has already saved or at least predestined to endure through the tribulation and uh, they will eventually repent when they finally look on him whom they have pierced as it describes it in Zephaniah, sorry, Zechariah uh, chapter 14. So these 144,000 Jews then will be joined by the other nations of the world in praising their Messiah when he returns at the end of the tribulation period. But one more question should be answered. Uh, why the absence of Dan? Why is Dan not mentioned? Well, I think that's also obvious. Dan is a bad guy. In fact, who would ever name their son Dan? I mean, Dan is just bad. That's offensive to like half our church. <laughs> um, and it's also why, you know, Abba wrote a song called Keep an Eye on Dan. Dan is somebody you got to keep an eye on. Um, no, I, the, the, actually, the answer is we have no idea why Dan is left out. In fact, if you compare all the lists of the 12 tribes of Israel throughout, and there's many, many lists, um, they're remarkably inconsistent in how they are listed. Sometimes Judah is listed first, sometimes Reuben, uh, even Dad, Gad, Joseph, and Manasseh, each of them are listed first in other lists. Uh, the lists also don't have the same order, even after the first person. Uh, sometimes Joseph is mentioned. Sometimes Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons, are mentioned in this place. Sometimes the Levites are included, sometimes not. In one list, Reuben and Gad are excluded. Uh, another, Simeon, is left out. 
And so my point in saying all that is that the lists of the 12 tribes are remarkably inconsistent. Uh, here, Joseph is included along with Manasseh, but his son Ephraim is missing. So why is that? Uh, Levi is included, but Dan is excluded. So why are they listed this way here? We, we don't know. But the point is, this, this inconsistent listing and including Joseph or Manasseh, it's clear who's being referred to. Why is Dan left out? We just don't know. Um, and all, all the speculations I read about, and none was even remotely convincing. It was highly, highly speculative, every suggestion that's offered. And so I don't, I don't think we're going to know why Dan is left out until the end. But it's important for us to remember that what is being communicated in the opening of the scroll again is the fulfillment of all of God's plans and purposes. All of his promises that he made in the Old Testament are now going to be revealed. And the foremost of all of his plans, of course, is the promise made to Abraham and his descendants. The Abrahamic covenant. And he's going to fulfill all of those promises that he made to his people. Um, but it's, it's important to recognize, even today, most of those promises that were made to Israel, literal Israel, the literal descendants of Abraham, most of those promises have not yet been fulfilled. They're still waiting. And the point here is, God has not given up on his people. He will make sure that 144,000, whether liberal or symbolic, will be saved. They will finally enjoy the promises that he made. God has not forsaken his people. And this is, of course, what Paul writes in Romans eleven twenty five. If you would look there, it's just good to be reminded of this God's plan for Israel, literal Israel. He says in verse 25 of Romans 11, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I believe 144,000 of them. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Uh, consider also the words of the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Joel 2, verse 28 through verses 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will <clears throat> pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. He's speaking to Israel. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Right? Just exactly the same events described here. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom Yahweh calls. And those whom Yahweh calls will be the ones sealed with his seal on their forehead. This 144,000. So again, the point being made in Revelation 7 and the sealing of this great number of people is that God will preserve a remnant of Israel. 
and they will finally repent, they will finally trust in their true Messiah and be saved. And so all of God's promises again will find their fulfillment at this time. Gentiles now are recipients of those promises made to Israel, but Israel will not finally experience them as a a nation until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then after this tribulation, or at least during this tribulation at some time, all Israel will be saved. 144,000 from every tribe. 12,000 from every tribe. That's what's being conveyed here. Well, this brings us to the worship of the saints. The final salvation of the Jews is signified in verses 1 through 8. This is then supplemented with the final salvation of the Gentiles from every tribe and nation. So it's not just the Jews who will be saved, but all who call on the name of the Lord. So John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And you'll note, as I was reading that, I bet, that the description of the multitude and and what's happening here really parallels what we read earlier in Revelation chapter 5. In verses 11 through 12, it, it says, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All right, and the, the scene in chapter 5, the scene in chapter 7, it includes the 24 elders, a multitude of angels, and, and both have the four living creatures even. And so I think the point being is that God will bring about what is conveyed in Revelation chapter 5, which again uh, symbolizes the fulfillment of all of God's plan for creation, That will finally come about after all Israel has been sealed and saved. And and God's wrath has been poured out upon the earth. So the palm branches being waved by the saints, uh, it's important to note, are symbols of joy. Uh, When when palm branches are waved in Scripture, it's it's a reference to exaltation and, and delight in what God has done. And the singing, of course, demonstrates this, this immense exaltation. So God's creatures are finally doing what God's creatures were created to do. It's finally happened. Revelation 5 has finally happened. As Augustine family said, God made us for himself, and we only truly rest when we rest in him. Right? The, the saints are finally at rest. Because they're finally at rest in Christ. Well, one question that comes up then is, when uh, is the Great Tribulation? What time period is this referring to? Verse 14, you'll note, indicates that these saints are those who have come out of the Great Tribulation. And so scholars debate, well, does the Great Tribulation refer to 
the whole church age from the time of Christ's ascension to his uh, his <laughs> descension, I guess, or his return. Others believe that it's referring to just the final seven years, this, uh, or even the three and a half years. I think both positions have strong merit, just referring to the entire church age or just the, the last days. Um, let me explain why both of those positions have merit. Uh, the word tribulation simply means to be pressed or squeezed. That's the that, that's what's being conveyed here. It, it's, usually, it's figurative language for a trial or a, a severe season of testing. For instance, Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room, I have said these things to me, to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, the usage there suggests that the tribulation is what all believers will experience throughout time on earth. John uses the word early in Revelation in reference to uh, his own present period of suffering. Revelation 1.9, John says, I am your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. All right, so he's speaking of the present time of tribulation. So both of those verses suggest that the, the, the phrase is uh, conveying trials that believers experience throughout time. Um, during the church age. Moreover, the phrase as it's used in the immediate context, again, suggests that this time referred to as more general, right? Because the numbers of Gentiles coming out of the tribulation are countless, right? And the book of Revelation gives very little indication that many believers are going to be saved, right? In fact, it suggests the opposite. That maybe a few are saved, but most people are going to have their hearts hardened and they will reject the Lord. But when Jesus uses the phrase great tribulation, the same phrase in Matthew 24, he uses it in reference to the last days. And note this, what he says in Matthew 24, 21. He says, for there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the fact that Jesus says that that during this great tribulation, it will be worse than any throughout history. The days will be worse than anybody has ever experienced throughout history. Well, you can't really say that about the last 2,000 years. I mean, things have been bad, but, but worse than any other period in history. I mean, things weren't really great the previous 5,000 years. Of history, So, how should we understand this? Well, I think putting these facts together, I think it's best to understand that this people in verses 9 through 7, coming out of the tribulation, entails all believers throughout the church age. However, the tribulation that people will experience in the last days will be far more intense than any, at any other period in history. So there will be a Great tribulation in, the, in, in its intensity compared to all the other previous tribulation believers have experienced in history. But I believe this, this multitude of people that are called, that come through the great tribulation, I believe that refers to all saints. So, namely, it would, it would include us. We would be included in this number. 
given a, particularly the amount of uh, people that are indicated here. And the most distinctive element about this multitude of Gentiles, again, which includes us, is that they are all clothed in white. And the significance is explained in verse 14. I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So, so these robes are symbolic of the fact that even though they were once unholy Gentiles, without God, strangers from the covenants of Israel, they have now been made holy. And not just made holy like Israel. They haven't just been made holy like priests, but they have been made as holy as the Lamb of God himself because his righteousness has been imputed to them. They've received his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So these, these saints are forgiven. They are clean. They are righteous, again, because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And then verses 15 through 17, it tells us the benefits of being washed. This is good. Therefore, because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, they are before the throne of God, serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them in His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the language used here in these, in these verses, 15 through 17, indicate that it's pointing to the future reign of Christ on the earth. The, the prophet Isaiah promises the Jewish exiles who the Messiah will bring back to the land that they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. So speaking of the Messiah when he reigns to calling all, his, all the Jewish exiles from the four corners of the earth to come, and he will satisfy them with living water. Psalm 121 promises, Yahweh is your keeper, Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I think it's true that God preserves us now, but I think this is ultimately looking forward to that time when no harm will ever, ever befall Christians or Jews who are believers in Christ. They will be secured from this time forth and forevermore. In fact, verses 16 through 17, you'll notice are reflective of Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I understand Psalm 23 to primarily be pointing to Christ's care for us that we will fully experience in the eternal state. We taste it now, but all of those promises will be absolutely true and unassailable in the eternal state. And these verses are virtually repeated in Revelation 21 that describes the eternal state. 
It says in verse 4, 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And all these promises will be completely fulfilled when Christ comes and sits on His throne. And this is why the Apostle Peter exhorts us, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to you at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says earlier in, in that chapter, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so the, the point, I think, being here even in Revelation is that all the promises are yes and amen in Scripture. And we will fully experience this, all these promises, when Christ returns and all, all this earth will pass away. And, and he will reign uh, in an eternal state forever and ever. And sin will be no more. That's why, that's why the um, Apostle Peter says, so set your hope fully on that time. Because it's coming. And it's true. We may have to endure for a little while that our Our faith may be tested so that we would know that we're real, that these promises are ours, that we're included in this great multitude from every nation who will serve before the throne of God in his temple. Um, So he he allows us to be tested. But the time of testing will end. Christ will come. He'll bring us home. And he'll wipe away every tear from our heart. Let's praise him for that. Lord, we thank you that even though we don't fully understand what's going to happen between now and the last days. We don't know the specifics of all your timing or what events will come to pass. We don't understand how the situation in Israel or in Ukraine ties into this, if at all. But Lord, what we do know is that everything you've promised will come to pass. And so I do pray that you would give confidence to my brothers and sisters here that they are true believers, so that as you test them and try them during this season in life, that they would hold fast to their faith and have confidence that you have promised to bring them home to glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.